Let me ask you now, if you would, to take out your Bibles. Now turn with me again to the book of Romans and chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This morning my desire, um, with God's help of course, um, is to serve your soul by focusing especially on the 11th verse of chapter 8. It ought to be a very encouraging verse to our souls. Um, To set the context, let's begin reading in verse 9, Romans 8 and verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. I really have two goals this morning. Uh, The first is to seek to help us understand what verse 11 is teaching. And the second is to help us see why it is a powerful verse and a verse that can do much good for our souls. Um, Let's put ourselves into the shoes of the Christians who first received this letter. The Christians to whom Paul was originally writing. These were Christians living in the city of Rome in the first century. Paul has just been speaking to these Christians in Romans 6 about fighting sin and living a life of holiness. And he's getting ready to come back to that theme again in verses 12 and and 13. In fact, look at those verses with me. Let's see where Paul is going. Verses 12 and 13. Paul is about to say, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so that's where we're going. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That's that's where we're going. But killing sin in your life is hard. Living a holy life is difficult. In fact, apart from the Spirit of God, it's impossible. We have our flesh that's against us. We have the devil who's against us. And then there's this world that we live in. And friends, the Roman world was a world of immorality. And these Christians that Paul is writing to are not just living in the Roman Empire, they're living in the capital of the Roman Empire. These Christians were living in the Sodom and Gomorrah of the first century. Because nowhere was immorality worse than in the major cities of the Roman Empire, and especially in Rome itself. 
In the first century, these Roman Christians were living in a place of rampant wickedness. Many of these Christians, they had been born and raised in this culture. All they had ever known were these these lives of immorality. And now becoming a Christian had meant a radical, radical change for them. The flow of their whole culture was was rushing towards hell. This was not a, a, a slow, gentle flow. This was a society that was rushing headlong into sin and evil. Paganism, of course, was rampant. Uh, By the first century, the worship of the emperor had become a major religion in the city of Rome. Uh, So much so that it is very likely that some of the Christians who first heard this letter read in their church were later fed to lions or burnt at a stake because they refused to worship the emperor as God. Sexual immorality in the city of Rome was absolutely perverse and pervasive. The writers of the day describe wealthy men watching their young servant boys, deciding which ones they would abuse that evening. Marital faithfulness was rare in the city of Rome. Divorce was commonplace, adultery even more so. It was accepted as a societal norm, something that everyone did. There had been a time when the great Greek philosophers, um, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, when they had had great influence on Roman society, but those days had passed, and they had dissipated into a time of moral relativism. Uh, The leading philosophies of the first century in Rome were Stoicism and Epicureanism. Uh, One group said, life is meaningless... Therefore, do the best you can to endure it. Do the best you can to get through it. Try and live a virtuous life. Don't get too excited. Don't get too sad. Just be stoic. It's the best life you can have. Life is meaningless, so just endure it. The other group, the Epicureans, they said, No, life is meaningless. Therefore, become hedonist. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Just live a life of indulgent pleasure. But whether you are a Stoic or an Epicurean, the leading philosophies of the day, and therefore the, what saturated the Roman culture was this idea that there is no afterlife, there is no heaven or hell, there is no absolute truth, life is meaningless, and therefore you live in a state of chaos, moral chaos. The first century Romans were in love with violence. They enjoyed watching the Roman games in the Colosseums where people were brutally killed by by animals or by gladiators. These are the Christians to whom Paul was writing. They live in the midst of this. And Paul is saying, Romans 6, Romans 8, 12, and 13, you be holy, you be pure, you be godly. Then there's us, and there's our day. I'm sure you've heard this before, but I tried to say, how do I sum up our culture and where we live? And uh, Mark, many Wednesday nights ago, read this from uh, Stephen Taylor, and I think it's wonderful, and it's a great assessment of our society. This is Stephen Taylor's creed on a modern world. You see if it doesn't characterize the times in which we live. 
He says, we believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. And we believe that everything is okay. As long as you don't hurt anyone, to the best definition of your word hurt, and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that sodomy is okay. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better, despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated, and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe that there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation and sin and heaven and hell and God and salvation. We believe that after death comes nothing, because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied... Well, then it's compulsory heaven for everyone, except perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson. What's selected is average. What's average is normal. What's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe there are no direct links between warfare and bloodshed. Americans should beat their guns into tractors, and the Russians will be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down, and that's the fault of society. Society is the fault of its conditions, and conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth except the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thoughts. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills ten, troops on rampage, whites go looting, bomb blast school... It is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. In other words, there isn't all that different between first century Rome and 21st century United States culture. Moral relativism resulting in paganism, pluralism, and immorality. Self-indulgent immorality. And now Paul speaks to us, but not just Paul. Our Savior speaks to us in Romans 6 and getting ready to say in Romans 8, 12, and 13, You be holy. You be different. You be pure. You be godly. And it's easy for us to look around and become discouraged and even depressed and to say it's one thing that I already have my own flesh against me. And then there's the devil who I hardly even understand, can't even imagine, and he's against me. And then there's this culture. 
And everything that speaks into my life is pushing me in these ungodly directions. Paul, how can you tell us to do these things? How can we be different? How can we make a stand? This this is a mighty river of immorality and ungodliness that we live in. It is not easier to it is not easy to turn the other direction and walk upstream. It, it hurts and it's hard and it's easy to get weary. And this is where our God meets us with the power of hope. Now, Herman, do you know the power of hope in the Bible? The power of hope is the power of having an eager expectation of something in the future that changes your outlook here and now. Uh, As Christians, the Bible tells us the end of the story. It takes us up to heaven to look at things from God's perspective. And it helps us to see that there is more going on in this world than just the chaos we see. Indeed, there is a real order to this world. There is a plan, a carefully crafted plan being unfolded and worked out. Indeed, this is a plan in which God will be glorified and everything will ultimately be for our good as Christians. Church, God has given us so many precious promises about the future. And it's as we believe these promises and eagerly anticipate their coming true, that we find strength, that we are able to endure, that we're able to have hope. This hope is what helps us to be faithful today. So in 1 Peter 1, Peter is going to give these Christians who are scattered throughout Asia Minor these different commands to obey. But before he gives them these commands to obey, he tells them how to obey. And this is what he says, 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, dear Christians, here is how you are to obey. With your hope set firmly on the grace of God that is going to come to you when Jesus comes back. Christians, do you know the wondrous things that are going to happen for you when Jesus comes back? And are they in the front of your mind? And do they undergird your life? If you believe God's promises to you, if you are eagerly anticipating the day when God's promises to you will come true, then you can find the strength you need to be holy in an ungodly culture. To be faithful in the midst of even difficult present situations. What is going to happen to us as Christians when Jesus comes back? One answer is this. God is going to complete this salvation work that He has begun in us. He who began this good work in us will bring it to its completion, its perfection, its final end. When? When Jesus comes back. Now wait a minute. What if we die before Jesus comes back? When our souls already be with Jesus? When our souls have already been made perfect? 
So if our souls are already perfect and we're with Jesus when He comes back, what's left to be done? What do I mean our salvation is going to be made complete when Jesus comes back? Well, folks, that is what verse 11 is about. The final thing to be done, the completion of your salvation when Jesus comes back on the last day is what verse 11 is about. Now, if you were here last week, remember that we saw that Paul is a dichotomist. That is, he believes that human beings have two essential parts, the soul and the body. I do not think the Bible teaches trichotomy, the idea that we are body, soul, and spirit. I think soul and spirit are two words with two different perspectives referring to the same reality. In fact, sometimes soul and spirit are used interchangeably. Um, Passages like this one in Romans 8 seem to necessitate that there are two essential aspects to people, body and soul. God made the body out of dust and the soul when he breathed into the body. Now, when we are born into this world, both our souls and our bodies are dead to God. Both our souls and our bodies are in service to sin. Both our souls and our bodies are in wickedness. We said last week we are the dead dead. Both our bodies and our souls are born dead to God, enslaved to sin. And then last week we saw verse 10. And we saw what has happened in the lives of Christians. That we are no longer the dead dead, we are the living dead. That is, our souls have been made alive. The Holy Spirit has come to us through the gospel and He's opened our eyes and He's given us a new heart and our souls are alive to God. We know God. We love God. We, we know what it is to walk with Him. We've, we've seen something of His glory. And though we still struggle with sin, at the very root of our souls, the chief desire of our lives is to know God more, to love God more, to be with Him forever and ever. Sin is now our enemy. God is our Father. Our souls are alive. But not our bodies. Our bodies are still as dead to God as they ever were. This is why we're the living dead. We are new creation bodies, new creation souls, living souls in dead bodies. It's why we must practice self-control. It's why we must make sure that it is our soul that controls our body and not vice versa. If we just follow the whims and the lusts of our bodies, whether it's gluttony, whether it's sexual immorality, whatever it is, it will kill us. And it will lead us away from Christ. So this is, this is our present circumstance. We are a living soul in a dead body with the flesh against us, that's the body, with the world against us and all of the evil we just described, with the devil against us. And Paul says, be holy. And we say, that's tough, that's hard. We need some hope. We need some encouragement. Verse 11. And the message of this verse is that there is coming a day when your body, like your soul, will be made alive. And not just physically alive. Yes, there will be a day when your body, if it's already dead in the ground, will be resurrected. 
But no, our bodies will be alive to God. There is coming a day when this body will be fully conformed to the will of God. There will be a day when your body will no longer lead you into sin, but lead you into purity. There will be a day when your body will love moderation. There will be a day when your body will be holy, just as your soul is, and you will be the living, living. Most Christians will have already died when Jesus comes back, and their souls will return with Christ. Some Christians will still be walking alive on the earth. Those who have died... Their bodies will be resurrected, perfected, and united with their souls, and they will be the living, living, walking streets of gold forever and ever. Those still walking the earth will be made perfect in body and soul in an instant and will be brought up to meet those who have already gone before. All of Christ's church, folks, imagine this. It is going to be an amazing day when all of God's people from every moment in history all over the world are suddenly gathered together in perfect bodies, in perfect souls, with Christ in the heavens. We will join Christ in bringing judgment on this earth, baptizing this world with fire, as Peter describes it, and making it new. And we will dwell with him forever. This is our hope. I mean, this is, this is what we were saved for. And it's believing this that gives us the strength to make it through a tough Monday and a tough Tuesday. This is where we find what we need to be faithful and to be godly when everything is pulling against us. Now, for the rest of this message, I want us to just look First at the promise itself, and then at the one who's going to accomplish it. So first the promise itself. You see it there in verse 11? He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So that's the promise. It's the promise of glorious resurrection. It's the promise of your body will one day be made alive and be made perfect. Two points about this. Number one, This resurrection will be different than the resurrection of Lazarus or the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. Remember those resurrections that Jesus performed? Miraculous resurrections. This resurrection that Paul is speaking of is different than those. Why? Well, one, those people died again. Uh, Those resurrections were temporary. Uh, In fact, when Lazarus and Jairus' daughter were raised... Their bodies continue to be imperfect. Their bodies continue to be impure and a cause of temptation to them. These were not mortal bodies suddenly made immortal. These were not sinful bodies suddenly made sinless. These resurrections that Jesus performed were miraculous and absolutely amazing, but far more amazing is the resurrection that Christ has promised to perform on your body on the last day. The resurrection coming your way is like the resurrection of Christ, the one that He experienced. Jesus came to earth as a true man with a human body that tempted Him. Jesus says, your body tempts you. Jesus knew what it was to be tempted for gluttony or towards idleness, to be tempted to look where He shouldn't look or to do what He shouldn't do. But Jesus did not sin. 
And when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that human body of His was glorified and made perfect. His human body will never die again. Jesus was a mortal body made immortal. His was a body of the curse of sin upon Him. And suddenly the curse of sin removed. Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. But we will follow after. Our resurrection will be like His. Do you see how this brings us hope? Do you see encouragement here? Second, the resurrection that our bodies will experience will be different than that which unbelievers will experience. There will be a clear distinction between the resurrection of Christians and the resurrection of non-Christians. Now, I want to be very clear. The resurrection that will take place of all the dead when Jesus comes back will be a resurrection of both believers and unbelievers. There is not a human being who has ever lived whose body will not be resurrected when Jesus comes back. Yes, many of them have long since turned to dust. Yes, many have had terrible things happen to their bodies so that we might think it is utterly impossible for that person's body to ever be brought back together. But nothing is impossible with God. And on the last day, we are told every person who has ever lived will be resurrected. Listen to Jesus say it. This is John 5, 28 through 29. Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So both the good and the evil those saved by the blood of Christ and those unsaved, they will all be resurrected. But there will be a difference in these resurrections. Christians, by grace, will receive glorified bodies that can never die. And they will never know again the experience of pain or sickness or suffering. These resurrected bodies will be bodies fit for heaven. The bodies of those who never knew saving grace the bodies of those outside of Christ will be raised with bodies fit for hell. Bodies formed in such a way that they will experience for all eternity a never-ending kind of death. Their bodies will be made in such a way that they will die forever without actually fully dying. They will experience suffering and pain forever, and yet it, it will not end. Remember, dear Christian, that the fate of the wicked is the fate that you and I deserve. You and I cannot boast that we get the glory of a perfect body living with Jesus on a new earth. We can't boast in that. All we can do is praise our God who in His sovereign mercy brought salvation to us. Though we did not deserve it, certainly no more than any other person, we did not deserve it at all. We deserved hell. But instead, we have been given promises like verse 11, the promise of bodies made new and perfect, fit for heaven. And so we ought to be grateful. And we ought to be humble. Let this hope grip us when you're sick. Anybody been sick this week? 
When your body groans with aches and pains. Anybody felt that this week? When you're nearing death. When you wish your eyesight was better. Or that you weren't so clumsy. Especially in those moments when your body seems to be giving you fits. Trying to lead you into sin. In those moments, hold on to this hope. Just a little while longer. Just a little while longer. And your body is going to be your faithful servant doing you good for all eternity. That's the promise. Now, who is going to bring this promise about? And our verse emphasizes that it is the Holy Spirit who is going to make this so. It is the Holy Spirit who is going to raise up our bodies and give them new life, just as it was the Holy Spirit who came upon you to cause your soul to live. So it will be the Spirit who comes upon your body to get your body to live. Listen again to the strange way that Paul wrote verse 11. You can hear how awkward this verse is written in order to emphasize that it is the Spirit who will do this work. Listen again, verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that's the Spirit, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. I'm sorry, that was the Father in the middle. So, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, that's the Father, through His Spirit who dwells in you. It's an awkward verse. If we were Paul's, I was going to say English teacher, if we were Paul's Greek teacher, we would give him a bad grade for, for style. This, this does not flow well. We would say, Paul, that is an awkward sentence. You need to, to rewrite that. Paul isn't concerned with style. He isn't concerned with keeping rules of grammar. He's not writing to impress us in that way. He is writing this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to communicate truth. And this sentence was written the way it was written to impress on us that it is the Holy Spirit who lives inside of your soul right now who is going to do this to your body on the day Jesus returns. The same Spirit, here's his point, the the same Holy Spirit that was present with Christ in the tomb and raised His body up is the same Spirit that lives inside of you. And if that spirit lives inside of you, then you can be sure that just as he did with Christ, he is going to do with you on the last day. In other words, you already have the guarantee. Here is a down payment that God has given you. Here is a pledge that God has given you that this great promise is going to come true. When you are tempted to doubt for even one moment that there will ever be a day when you will be free from this sin-prone body of yours. Here is your confidence. The Spirit who's going to do it is already in you. He's already with you. He's already working in your soul and remaking your soul. and He's already shown you what He can do and He's going to do it to your body. The chain reaction has already begun. The dominoes have already begun to fall. It's going to happen. That's what he's emphasizing. 
You should be smiling. This is good news. This is wonderful news. Remember Ephesians 1 and what Paul told us about the Holy Spirit? In Him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Hear that, church. We haven't yet fully acquired our inheritance. It's, it's still away from us. We don't yet have a perfected body. We're, we're not yet walking streets of gold. But God has given us something as a guarantee to know that it's coming. The Spirit inside of us. And as we see the Spirit work, as we see us grow in faith, as we see us grow in godliness, as we see us grow in our understanding of the Word, we have more and more confidence that day is coming. Let the world do what it may. Yes, it's a struggle. Yes, it's hard. But I'm going to strive for godliness with all my might because that day is coming. And when you know victory is at hand, it's easier to fight a little bit harder. It's easier to find strength that you didn't know you had. This is what the promises of the Bible are. They're fuel for the car of your Christian life. And you finally say, oh, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore and you read another promise and you find a little more fuel and you keep going and you keep going it is through the word that the spirit keeps Christ's people believing and saved so that you endure to the end so let this hope encourage you and strengthen you your battle with the flesh is coming to an end there are happy days ahead for us as Christians set your hope on this and find resolve to live faithfully for Christ in this world and we can end there but I must say one more thing did you notice that this whole verse is conditional that is did you notice the word if the word if if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If, if, if. This verse is a glorious promise, but it's only a promise for certain people who meet the condition. If you're here this morning and you do not have the Holy Spirit inside of you, this promise isn't yours. Justin, how can I know if the Holy Spirit is inside of me? We've talked a lot about that in verses 5 through 8. So let me mention just one way. When the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, they see their sin, they see that they deserve hell, and they see that Jesus is a perfect Savior for sinners. And they call out on Christ in faith. One of the great fruits of the Spirit is faith. The Holy Spirit's work of mercy in a person's life brings that person to Christ, sets the spotlight on Christ, and says to the soul, will you not follow Christ? Will you not submit to this wonderful shepherd? Trust Jesus and follow him. Follow him by being in his word. Follow him through prayer. Follow him by learning from him how to live in this world. Follow him by being a part of his body, the church. Follow him by resting on nothing else to make you right with God, but his work and his work alone. If you believe, if you trust Christ, you have the Spirit. You have the guarantee. But you must have faith. 
We're all born as the dead dead, dead to God in body and soul. When the Spirit makes us new, our souls are alive to God. Our bodies stay dead. We're the living dead. But for us who believe, there is coming a day when our bodies will be made new as well as our souls, and we will be the living, living. And it will all be by grace, and it will all be because of the cross, and to Jesus Christ will belong all the glory. This is the hope that helps us to carry on. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Take a few moments and think about what's been said. And if you're here and you don't know that you have the Spirit because you don't know that you really believe, let me urge you in these moments to call out on Christ. Call on Him to save you. Commit your life to Him, to following Him. Show it through baptism, church membership, and by beginning to sit at His feet and learning from His Word what it is to be a godly person. Trust Christ. Others here, thank God for the salvation you have and pray that he would help you to believe more firmly these great promises of the Bible. Pray that your roots would go deep into these promises so that you can draw strength, nutrients from them all the time, each day, especially when it's hard. Ask that God through these promises would give you the hope so that you can persevere each day in godly living. Let's take a few moments to pray, and then we'll respond together in song. Let's pray.